New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Comedy Legacy Series. Today's going to be a fun one for me. Um, I get to geek out because our guest is not just a really great comedian, but he's also probably the foremost historian on stand-up comedy in America. He's got two great books about stand-up that are written. Uh, he's uh, the focus of a documentary uh, about stand-up comedy called I Am, uh, I Am Comic. You guys are in for such, such a special treat. Uh, sit back, relax. Help me welcome Mr. Rich Scheidner. All right, so this is going to be the absolute most fun uh, of my episodes for me because I am the biggest comedy nerd and I've got possibly the foremost comedy historian uh, in the country, Mr. Rich Scheidner, who is also an amazing stand-up comic. We worked together when I was but a youngling in this industry many, many years ago, uh, and I still remember that horrible little room just outside of Los Angeles, nobody doing well, and then you going up and just taking control of the whole room. You know, so you've been in the trenches, you've been doing the research. I want to thank you for coming on on here. And uh, I want to start by talking about your comedy, because you've done so much, personally, as a stand-up, from, you know, the television appearances to writing for television to all these things. What got you into stand-up? What made you want to do this? You know, I mean, looking back, I was always funny, and, and humor is an important part of my... Uh, defense mechanisms and my, my way of uh, uh, dealing with life. And um, once I got, a, a friend of mine took me to, to a place in law school to do it. And once I started hearing those laughs from strangers, which, you know, you're kind of used to making your friends laugh. You just think, well, it's because we're all making each other laugh. It doesn't really mean anything, although I love doing it. Once you start hearing those laughs from strangers, it's another drum. It's just another drum. It's, it's right up the scale. And then that's all I can think about doing. Now, um, you've performed all over, you, just about every kind of gig you could imagine. What was the first time in your career that you really felt that you knew what you were doing on stage? Wow. I had never been asked that before. What was the first time I felt that I knew what I was doing on stage? Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard one to pinpoint. I think it's such a – because I was on stage so much when I first started. I mean, I would never – wanted to take off nights. And when I got to New York, I never took off a night. But I remember there was a time um, when I went up to, to uh, Ottawa, Canada. It was like my first gig that I was like going to be headlining. And it was supposed to be two shows, two like 45-minute shows. I had about a half hour of material if they laughed at everything. And they laughed a lot. I could stretch it to a half. And... I just went at it and I went at it hard and I was dumping my notebook and every night, every minute that I wasn't on stage, I was looking at my notebooks and pulling everything out I think I could do. And I went it, it, at the end of that. I mean, you know, there's, there's two shows that one night, the first night I got there, then there's two shows. I went, I, 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 I just knew I had a bit of more swagger, a lot more swagger. I came back the next night with a lot of swagger. You know, I felt like I could, like you said, control the room and that's what it is. I felt I could go in there and dominate the room. And just for that purpose of making them laugh. Not like I was the best looking guy in there or the 
and not a dancer or not a not a smart guy, but just for the purpose of making a laugh, I could dominate that room. And that's that I had that swagger that night. I know it. So um, your process of writing, because you write and your material is just ungodly good. I mean, it's just when we when I look back and see what you were talking about at the time when you were talking about these things, you were in another class as a writer. Was that something you prided yourself on or did that just come naturally? Absolutely prided myself. I, I was a guy who just loved you know, that new material smell. I just wanted the new stuff and I wanted to be ahead or different from what was being said at the time. I didn't want to, so, you know, I dropped stuff I, when I when I got it and then all of a sudden everybody else was talking about it. I moved on to something else. I always wanted to be a part separate and find the things that, you know, I love counterpunching. You know, when everybody was complaining about buying feminine hygiene products for their girlfriends, then I went the other way and found the, the pride in doing that. So I loved counterpunching what was going on at the time. And I loved, uh, you know, sometimes, and then you know when you're doing it, sometimes you, there are jokes that you get, almost got booed for. There was a joke I almost got booed for back in the late 70s when I did it. And uh, and then and then by the 90s, I brought it back by freakish accident and it started working great. And it's like, you know, I just love that thing where you think, you, you know, you have to be on time with it. But I love when something that you go, you're so far ahead of it. That it, uh, 13 years later, I'm on time. I just let that the, the thrill of material. That's what it is, the thrill of material. Now, you know, I also come from more of a writer's, you know, uh, viewpoint. You know, my perform. I had to learn how to perform on stage. Totally get that. Totally get that. That was me. Totally. Yeah, but you totally. seem to be much more natural. I, was that comfortability you had faked? Oh, my God. No, you can't fake it. I, I mean, maybe, there are people that I, I take that back. I take it back. There are I can't fake it. There are people who can. I was uncomfortable, and it took me a long time. It took me just going after it night after night after night after night. And I never thought I was a good performer. I thought I could do what I did. I could do what I did, but I never felt like I had any performance skills. I couldn't really do impressions, and I couldn't really sing or you know a little bit. You know, I could do a song parody or something. I just didn't feel like I had good performance skills. I had two voices in my repertoire, basically. You know, and that's it. You know, so, but, but you get comfortable up there. The laughter makes you comfortable. And that was the only reason I was going up there. I didn't go up for any other reason. Just wanted to get those laughs. Yeah. It was, it was my music and it was soothing. It's a, a way I could never describe to anybody. You know, do you understand? But the oh, yeah. it, it's, it's like, it's like an alcoholic explaining to a non-alcoholic. It's like someone who's suffers from depression explaining to someone who doesn't have depression. You yeah. can't explain unless you're in that club. You can't understand. It's like probably like somebody in combat, like like you know, trying to explain to somebody who's not in combat. They can only relate to people who are in combat. Got that experience. Got that experience. Um, I wanna I wanna keep talking about your stand-up, and we got to get into the history of it because, from what I understand, the lecture that you're you're going around doing with the history of stand-up is just remarkable, and I do want to talk about that. But I also want to talk about. Um, I got to see you in clubs, you know, as a younger performer. And then I would see you on TV. And it always seemed to me like it was, and not just you, but all the performers I would see in the clubs were so free and you'd get to TV and you'd be so handcuffed. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no other way of describing it, but handcuffed, you know, you take what you're doing on 
on, on stage live in the clubs. And then you, you sort of pick the best out of this bit, the best out of that bit. You know, you pull out random jokes. Maybe you can have a little hunk together and you spot well it all together as sort of like, a, this is my greatest hits of right now. And you throw it up there and you're, you're sort of, you know, you have basically everything approved. Everything had to be approved. I'm talking, if you're talking about the Tonight Show, yep. Letterman show of the of the eighties um, and nineties, I, I, I all of them were like that. You just sort of the one only place where I did things where I would I kind of didn't have to explain what I was going to do was even the improv those kind of shows. They were mm -hmm. like, okay, come on and do it. You know, they trusted you to do it. I didn't have to then so I tended to do even some improv screwing around within the within the, the, the time frame you had. But those Tonight Shows, those Letterman Shows, they were, you were out there kind of, it was a little showcase, a little greatest hits thing. You just hoped your personality came through enough to matter. Now, it, it always seemed to me in watching you do those things that you didn't enjoy those experiences as much <laughs> as you enjoyed no. clubs. Because you, no. you loved being on stage in clubs. The clubs were like, you, you came off stated. I mean, it's like the difference between, um, you know, it's uh, almost, uh, uh, I don't know how clean you work on this show, but it's it's uh, 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 like like not finishing the act in, in the, on, on stage, you know, in, in, in the clubs, you never did. You finished, you were finished. Like, you, you, I had all the time I needed and wanted, and they didn't. And you left them knowing that you'd rung them out. But in the in the Tonight Show, five minutes, four and a half minutes, or whatever it was, you, you know, you didn't, you didn't, and the pressure leading up to it was always so great. You know, it, it was a sense of accomplishment, but it wasn't a, a high. Yeah. So I, um, I went back. I'm sorry. You say that again. It wasn't a performance high. You know, you yeah. where you come off the stage high. I never came off. Now I went back and I looked at my notes from times that I've seen you live over the years. Because I take copious notes on all the performers I see. Because really? oh yeah, I love stand up. I'd love to see that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would. I would be more than happy to share with you. But what what has struck me in three separate times in three separate sets, I marked down that I've never seen somebody with this kind of timing, somebody with that kind of commitment to hold for a laugh when he knew it was coming, and just the sheer confidence that you have. On the holding for that laugh. That's not easy for young performers to get to. That understanding the laugh will come and you got to wait them out. It, was that something that you had to learn? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, all these things, you had all these skills with your friends. I had them with my friends, but to learn them in front of strangers, when those eyes hit you, you know, when you go on stage, you see those eyes, then they expect the laugh. You know, you're not you're hanging with your friends. It's like you're in the moment. Somebody else might say something funny. You know, everybody's taking their turn. But when you're the only source of entertainment at that moment and those eyes of expectation, it, it, you ha I had to learn everything about it. Everything. And so yeah. the commitment was I, I only had confidence from doing it so many times. It's all reputation, rep repetition, right? It's all repetition. Mm -hmm. So... I only had the confidence from that doing it so many times. I never had any confidence anywhere else in the world that getting laughs on stage. <laughs> you know, that's the only place I had that kind of confidence. Yeah. And all I knew that I'd get them eventually. You know, even if it was a slow start, it was a tough room. 
you know, you followed some act that completely bombed or worked so blue and filthy and racist or whatever, you go, I'm going to turn it around eventually. I'm going to wipe them clean eventually. I learned a trick. I think it was, I forget who, who did it traditionally. I think it was, I heard his stories, Red Fox. And when somebody really killed, really killed in front of him, he'd pull him back on the seat. Come bring, bring the boy back. Bring him out here. Bring him out here again. And he'd bring him on. And he'd give him another hand. Another one. And he'd keep telling the guy, give him another hand. Give him another hand. Give him another hand. And then he finally sent him off, right? And, and afterwards, the first time that happened, the young guy said, oh, thanks, Red Man, you really, I was just wiping you clean. <laughs> <laughs> Making sure they were done seeing you. <laughs> okay, we've said it enough. Thank you. Get him out of here. What's next? <laughs> now, that brings up something, you know, a lot of comics don't realize this, but I got the tail end of it. You were there during the height of it. Um, when you would be on stage and the guy before you or the guy after you is somebody that eventually became an all-star. You know, I, I remember looking at a lineup for uh, a Velazos gig and from the late 70s and seeing that it was Carol Lee for Gary Shambling and Jerry Seinfeld. You know, <laughs> and, 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 and you couldn't buy that show today. They each got $50 or $55. Yeah. So... Yeah, I we, we were regularly trained to go up after somebody who pressed you and who killed. And, yeah. you know, nowadays there's a lot of soft comics, for lack of a better way of saying it. Did, did you find that getting that baptism by fire, that, that going up with those kind of guys made you yeah. do better? Yeah, yeah, it forced you. My, when I first, my first paying spots at the improv, Every weekend spot that I got when I first got weekend spots was following Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert had the fourth spot in the show at the Improv. He, he, there would be three comics, a musical act, then Gilbert. And the last paying spot, the fifth paying spot of the show, after that they were all unpaid shots, were, was mine. That's what I did every time. So I had to learn to follow Gilbert. It forced me to become a better comic. I couldn't even do like regular bits because Gilbert had this Tony from Brooklyn character, which completely completely dissembled comedy, man. He completely parodied comedy. Yeah. So you had to do something. He forced me to grow. He forced, he forced you to get strong. And every time, again, you were doing these shows, the showcase clubs, like you said, there's Larry Miller, there's Rick Overton, there's 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 Richard Belzer, there's there's Jerry Seinfeld, there's Carol Liefer, there's, there's you know, Lane Boozler comes in, then Robert Klein comes in. You know, you, you just stopped and you just jumped in the middle of that. Yeah. When uh, my first spots, my first pay spots at the comic strip were following Sam Kennison because nobody else wanted the spots. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. exactly right. And, you know, yeah. and, and when Sam first started, he was like the last person on the show because he was so bad. Yeah. And he into a killer spot. So, you know. You know, people don't remember that comics take a while to, to develop. I mean, I remember going in the late 70s when I first used to start going to comedy clubs Catch a rising star in New York City, and, and you'd see Richard Jenny, and they'd put him up last because they wanted to go home, and they knew he'd clear the room. Yeah, they, they had room. It was just like in Vaudeville. Vaudeville used to call it the chaser act. They chased the audience out of the room, right? Yeah. And they had the same thing in the showcase clubs. And everybody, especially if the guy or the woman has a different voice, if they if they're doing something a little out of the ordinary, it takes time for them to learn how to come across with it, and sometimes it's timing. You know, Kennison's angry screaming didn't work in the early 80s, but 
anger became a, a sort of a, a mood in the country in the mid late 80s. And he fit perfectly. He had career timing. You have to have career timing as much as, as joke timing. Now, you talked a little bit about that in the uh, documentary, I Am, I Am Comic, where um, when they asked if you wanted to come back and you said that you thought your time had passed. You thought you get one shot, you know, and, and that's that's it. Do you well, feel I, that way? I mean, it, it, as a, in a certain way, I do. You know, your, t- your time, I mean, most people don't change, but very few, maybe George Carlin's great exception, can actually change. Now, he didn't change his style. He changed his material. He changed his... his his viewpoint and approach to his jokes, but he was still doing the same George Carlin performance style. But very few people can even do what he did. But most styles are locked into a, uh, a an era. There's the comic language, the, the, the way they perform. It's, it's an era that you come up in and you sort of lock into that. And I think you get your shot. It's almost like an athlete. You have a certain amount of time to get to the major leagues, if you don't buy a certain amount of time, you sort of fall aside. There are very few late bloomers. I can think of one in each generation recently. I can think of, of course, Rodney Dangerfield, Lewis Black, and my generation was a late bloomer who became very, very big. It took those guys time for what they were doing to fit the times and for them to fit that character they were doing. So, but very few people perform outside of their era. I mean, in terms of most comics, when their audiences discretionary income spending disappears, their careers disappear. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about where you were, where you felt your, your shot was gone. You were writing for everybody. You, you know, you were writing on television. You're appearing on television. Um, I think it's over 24 late night shots when, when you sum total them all. Uh, there's 24, it might be more, you know, and then you stepped away. You just stepped away. Well, I, I, the truth is I had five back in my day. It was the thing was to get a television show or at least to become a character on TV show. And I had five pilots that didn't turn in the series and I was out on the road. I got heckled by Sean Pence. True story. I was out in South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, guys heckling me my whole show, but it was fun heckling. You know what I mean? He was getting laughs. I was getting laughs. We were playing. The crowd was going crazy. It was fun. And afterwards, it was Sean Penn. And as sure of a story is, I hung out with him all night. At the end of the night, he goes, I got to go. I got to go, man. Right? And he goes, oh, well, well, before you go, I want to say something to you. He goes, you got to move to L.A. And I thought, whoa, whoa. I thought he knew who I was. He just thought I was a funny guy. He came across in South Carolina. And I realized I wasn't making a dent. I've been in L.A. for 10 years, been doing all those shots you talked about, appearances on TV, HBO special. He didn't know who I was. I wasn't making it then. That that jump from the clubs to the theaters is a snake river jump for comedians. To go from being popular in clubs to drawing in the theaters, that's, that's, the, that's the big separation. And then at a certain point, for most comics, and again, there are exceptions. There are guys who've hung in the in the clubs for a long, long time. Dom Herrera, Bobby Slayton come to mind immediately for my generation. Yeah. But for most comics, you start aging out of the clubs. The club audience stays the same age, and the comic gets older and older. Eventually, the comic looks like Nosferatu bent over a young girl. You know, the comic's up there 50, 60 years old trying to talk about stuff to relate to 20, 30-year-olds. You know, it, it, and the club owners will go, I remember... 
Excuse me. Wait a minute. Excuse me. Yep. Thought I was going to sneeze. <coughs> yep. Right. Man. Mountains give me some allergies. <laughs> well, Bless you. I remember I was going back to this club in Atlanta, Punchline, all the time. I was going back to this club, and every time I go back, I get more and more money. And they're always paying me more money. Got the point in sometime in the 90s where I didn't get more money. And I went back, you know, and I didn't say anything. And then uh, at the end of the week, when I'm getting paid, the owner says, you know, Rich, we love you. You, know, you notice you didn't get more money. I said, be honest with you, man. I can get a younger guy to do your act for less money. Now, he wasn't saying my act explicitly. He was just saying, you're not a draw, specifically a draw. So I get anybody to come up in here and do 45 minutes to close now for a lot less money. That's what it is. When yeah. I first started, it really was there weren't a lot of guys who could headline. There weren't a lot of guys who could do the time. What big thing that changed in the clubs during the 80s was the drinking. When I first started in the early 80s, they wanted to sell as much booze they could to that audience. They didn't care how drunk they got them. They sold as much booze as they could so the comics who could hold an audience long. And we were doing, I mean, talking about headliners, <coughs> consistently, I don't think I ever did less than an hour and a half show. And that's following up two other people who might have done like 45 minutes in front of me. They wanted long shows. They were selling booze. And then Mothers Against Drunk Driving changed the whole attitude towards drunk driving in this country. And the clubs started becoming legally responsible. And so they cut the shows off. They go, we don't want you to do more than an hour tops. You know, we want this show over an hour and 45 minutes, start to finish tops. Remember, they, they stopped. That's when the checks started coming up to be the check spot. It'd be the, you know, when they'd hand out the checks, they never did. You know, this was a totally different thing to change. So the, the, what you had to do is a comic change. Yeah. So let's. Um, that was a long answer. No, but that's a great answer. I want to talk more about the history, but I also want to talk about your process because you are such a great writer uh, and always have been such a great writer. And you also write great stuff for other comics uh, as well. So I want to talk about your process when you were writing for you and how that differs as when you write for other people. I, I don't think my process, well, I don't know. I mean, a lot of times you come up with a joke, you still have to massage it. The, 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 again, the transition from the page to the stage is everything, right? Something that looks funny on the paper may not work verbatim on stage. You have to change things around. Setup's too long, too short, whatever. So I did a lot of work in the daytime. Even when I, back in the day when I was heavily drinking and drugging at night, I'd always get up sometime before I went out to go do comedy at night and force myself to work for an hour or so on my material, going over my notes. Even if I didn't have a punchline to that setup, if I had something I thought was a great concept and I didn't quite have the closing you know, punchline for it, I by focusing on it in that daytime, at night when I'm on stage, it came to me. Somehow it came to me. A lot of times the, the finish to the joke came out on stage. So writing in the daytime was real important to writing on stage because a lot of comics do write on stage. But I, I thought I was one of them too. But I did a lot of work in the daytime to do that writing on stage at night. Now, when you're writing for other people, how much do you take their voice into account? How much do you, do you take what they want, what they historically have done into account? Well, taking their voices, everything, and I try to come as close as I can to their attitudes. Oh, they wouldn't say this or this wouldn't work for them. Uh, but even if, as close as I can get with somebody's material, 
they still have to put it in their voice. For instance, I would write for Jeff Fox. Well, I got this South Jersey. Yeah, that, that, that. And, and he's a, hey, hey, hey. You know, he's a Southern draw. So he would transfer what I was saying into his language, you know, to put it in his words on stage. So I think that every comic, you know, even if you write great material for them, they still have to put it in their in their cadence, their mm-hmm. specific cadence, and, and their, their language, what they feel comfortable saying. Not so, just converse. Let's. Um, I want to talk about a lot of the stuff that you've done. Um, you know, post uh, post uh, coming off the road. I want to start with I killed because um, truth be told, in two thousand five, I released a, a book on comedy writing, and uh, my book. Everyone kept coming up to me, going, "That's the best book on comedy writing that I've ever read." And then I killed comes out. And nobody wanted to talk about my book anymore. It's all about that book. So you, you kind of just stole my thunder when my book came out. But let's talk about that because that is such a great book. And it's, you know, I think every comic has had that notion of, you know, let, let's tell the war stories in a book. But, you, you know, um, you and Mark were the first two guys to actually just do it. You know, what, yeah. gave, what gave you the idea? Well, I was, I was working on Blue Collar TV. And on that show, of course, you had uh, Jeff Foxworthy, Larry Cable Guy, Ron White, and Bill Engvall. Plus, the writers, uh, Lane Kapach, myself, uh, I'm going to forget some people, but there were a bunch of writers, okay, who were stand comics. And one day we were uh, in a writing room, and we started swapping stories, telling stories. And I already had my favorites. I've been telling stories for years. I've probably been telling war stories probably six months after I started doing stand-up comedy, right? So we started swapping stories and the writing staff and the producers, and then people came from down the hall. They heard so much laughter in the room. And then there was a, 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 a editing office down below our office and it cleared out and came up to our room. And we had people standing. It was a show. We had people standing around, peeking in through the, through the uh, doorway to hear these stories. We probably did stories for an hour, an hour and a half. And at the end of that, uh, uh, a woman, uh, one of the writers named Emily Cutler said to me, she says, you've got to put that together in a book. So I knew it was going to take a lot of work to, to pull it together. So I called up my friend, Mark Schiff. He immediately said, I've been wanting to do something like this myself. I just hadn't, and we jumped into it together and that's how it came to be. And then, but you know, it was hard. It was hard for a lot of reasons. I mean, I, uh, uh, uh dealing with the publisher and who they wanted and what stories they wanted. Didn't agree with those. They required editing. They wanted rewrites on people's stories. It got really messy, you know, and, and, and dealing with other people's material. So, uh, but ultimately I'd say 95% of that book, I'm really proud of. I mean, the way it came out and, and, you know, it's funny. It's a funny book. Yeah. And it, it just, it is the closest that I've, I've, ever come to seeing our experience as comics actually translated to a book because people have always tried to use comics as a protagonist and they don't get near what we do and that book is as close to being in the room with us as you can get and there were people there were people i talked to i mean i i have i still have stories uh, you know that from from the transcripts of people and there were comics who probably could do their own books I mean, Robert Schimmel, God rest his soul. I wish he alive. He had the best. His his storytelling was unbelievable. 
and he is the content was fantastic. Kelly Monty, uh, yeah. I mean, what a great storyteller he is. And uh, there, there are a lot of people, you know, and there are people who didn't make the book. I felt bad about. I felt horrible about. Yeah, but I will tell you this: every comic that got in the book, that's a badge, a badge of pride. I mean, to make that cut is. I think comics hold that credit better than a Tonight Show credit at this point. <laughs> it, it does. It does feel good when you get in. You know, any. It Get in, doesn't it? Always feels good when you get Oh, yeah. Any uh, any idea of whether or not you're ever going to write a sequel to it? No, be I told more. you. Listen, when we looked at how much money we made and how many man hours we put into it, we could have done better work at a McDonald's. That was <laughs> a profit-making adventure. But yeah. uh, we once we got into it, there was no way we were going to stop. Mark and I were both like that. And uh, we finished it, and we did yeah. the best we could. But uh, now... You know, given that that negative financial experience writing a book, uh, years later, cut to, uh, I think it was last year, you released uh, your Tales on the Road. So you went back to the well of writing a book. Again. Well, it, it was more than just road stories. Of course, there were a lot of road stories I didn't put in. We only put into uh, in, in I Kill. But, yeah, I wanted to write a book about the experience of the 80s, really my experience in comedy. And I wanted to try to cover every aspect to a story or something, uh, whether it was heckling, or joke stealing, every part of stand-up comedy I can think of, bad rooms, physical bad rooms, yeah. whatever, in stories I had them, and I wanted to get that experience of what it, what the personality of a comic was, uh, yeah. which is where my initial real interest in, in, in I Am Comic, the documentary with Jordan Brady. So yeah. I, I, I got it in the book, uh, Through the Ashes. Yep, and I, I want to talk about that book through the ashes because I started as a 19-year-old in 1983, you know, and wide-eyed, you know, and catch a rising star for my first set, waited out the audition line when they used to make you wait on Mondays for nine hours before they'd give you the number. Um, cut to, you know, 84, 85, 86, 50 weeks a year on the road doing, doing you know, the Charlie Goodnights going down to the comedy zones going, you know, west to the Gisser gigs in Ohio, you know, all those places that you're mentioning in your book are, are pretty much my college. That's, that's where I cut my teeth. And you were talking about, and one of the things I love about your book is you don't sugarcoat it. You point out, you talk about how bad some of the accommodations were where they put you up. Uh, it, it, you know, the comedy condos are things of legends. Uh, and you also, in your book, you know, uh, uh, point out that it's the bad gigs that kind of make you appreciate the good gigs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you appreciate but you have to go through those. When things, people talk about paying your dues and all, nobody starts every great on a private jet going from theater to theater. They, most everybody who's who's a big comedy star today had those gigs coming up, and there are plenty of them. I remember talking to so many comics, talking about getting beat by promoters. And, 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 and I was lucky; I only had one check bounce on me, and the guy that bounced a check on me years later out of nowhere gives me the money. So, you know, I never got burned that way. But yeah. just the bad rooms—they didn't know the people didn't know what they were doing opening the rooms. You know, Kipadada uh, went around; he was like one of the guys who was like a who opened a lot of clubs they brought him out he was a big name on make me laugh yep. he and Leto were sort of the shock troops of comedy they came in and did a lot of club openings 
when the club owners who were open had no idea how to run a comedy room because no, nobody did, did basically outside of Bud Friedman and Mitzi Shore. And so, you know, they, 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 they taught a lot of club owners how to open rooms and still they work every room. I mean, I, that room I talked about in Wake Forest was down in Florida, I mean, in North Carolina, Wake Forest. And it was, it was so badly set up by every possible way. The tables, there was a, it was a restaurant and there were just booths all over the place. And the booths had glass partitions up to the ceiling, right, on, on the back of the booth. Yeah. And so every little, every little thing was cut off. You couldn't hear the laughter. They, they had a sound system running through their sound system. You know, they just pulled a plug into the wall. They had a cord that just was tied to like two feet from the wall. You paid first basically the back against the wall. In the overhead corner. spotlight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was just a, it was a, it was a can, tin can with a light bulb in it. <laughs> yeah. The French fry light that we all, uh, lived through the 80s with but you know it was for me you know and i don't know if you have a, a an opinion on this for me it was learning how to be heard in those gigs that allowed me to be you know an easier performer when things were going right absolutely look i started most of my learning experience when i first began was opening up for bands rock bands jazz bands a lot of opening act work when I first started. And these clubs, if the sound went out, I, I, I worked without the sound. I think you find out of the three things that we find important physically in a room, and I'm talking about inside a room, because outside, that's a whole other animal. But inside, you know, you want a, a stage elevation to be up a little bit, you want lighting, and you want sound. And I found the most important of three of them, the thing that I could not do without was the lighting. If I'm in the dark, big trouble. I can, I can, if I got the light on me, I'm on stage, I can yell, I can be loud enough to be heard, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm not on the stage and I got the lights on me and I, and I got a microphone, I'm okay, even if I'm standing on the floor. But if I'm in the dark, big trouble. Tough to, tough to get the audience in. They can't really see you. The focus on this voice in the dark. Yeah. And it's amazing how little thought was given in, in the 80s in particular, to the physical setup of the room. You had your big, glorious oh. rooms. You had your rascals and things like that that were set up perfectly. And then yes. so many other rooms, you just walk in and just pray that the check clears. Well, you were, you, were, you, were, you were experiencing what a lot of these places had just pulled the mechanical bull out the week before you got there. They weren't in the comedy until comedy became so much in vogue. And then there were these they, – they, they noticed – that, you know, these uh, either in their own hometown, in, in the city they were in, there were clubs packed, or they'd gone to a nearby city where it's packed, and they thought, I, I would like to pack my place, right? So they were just doing what they thought would work in a business sense, not, not for any love of the art form. <laughs> now, that's kind of also a double-edged sword, too, because I would, I would think, having come up in the 70s, being on television... <laughs> as frequently as you are doing the pilots when you're living out in LA and then, you know, having to deal with, you know, less than rooms would be a little bit difficult, you know, to adjust to, you know, how did you balance the emotional weight uh, of the touring? Cause for me, it was all about, you know, booze and all about, you know, a rough lifestyle, you know, <laughs> other, other people, you know, not so much. 
I talked well, to Seinfeld, and, and he's got through it easy. But he got through it easy because he always had a plan. Jerry was always disciplined, had a plan. He, he was so he still is so brilliant. But um, I, when I first started, you just went out to do the rooms. I needed as much date time as possible, needed money to, to live. So I was just out on the road all the time those first few years. I had not done television. I didn't do my first national TV spot till evening to improv that was uh, aired for the first time in like uh, the, 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 the early winter of 82. So those three, three years before that, they was just do whatever you could and, and took every gig you could. And um, it did, it started getting much better. By the time I stopped drinking and drugging in 85, there were great clubs everywhere, everywhere. Everybody knew how to do it by then if they had half for brains. I didn't have to work the B circuit. I only worked the A circuit. Mark Anderson opened up, even at the, imp- I mean, not even at the improv. Mark Anderson opened up improv franchises everywhere, and there were great rooms. And there were so many great rooms in every big city, San Francisco, Atlanta. There were, there were clubs everywhere. Philly had great, you know, there were just great rooms everywhere. Cleveland, Detroit. So there were A rooms yep. everywhere. There was, that, there was no, I wasn't forced to work those bad rooms unless I got greedy inside of the bungalow. I got a one-nighter I'll squeeze in between the two weeks. <laughs> yeah, we all, we all did a bit too much of that back then. <laughs> you know, so I want to talk, uh, let's talk about the documentary. Because the documentary is also just... It, it's eye-opening, you know. It's tongue-in-cheek. It, it captures the tone of being a comic, you know, and it also captures your personal journey really well. So how'd you get to be involved in I Am Comic, and, and what's your, your take-out from it? Well, um, Jordan Brady read I Killed and said, I want to do a, a a version of that, a documentary version. I said, well, I just don't want to do random stories from the book. I just don't want to go interview people and have them do stories. Of course, stories are important, but I want to talk about what it takes to really do stand-up comedy, the personality and everything else. We can get into it at that time. And Jordan's like, great, let's do it. So we were we were doing the documentary and, and Jordan being a good director he is, the storyteller it is, he knew he needed something more than just us going to interviewing comics. He noticed the, the lust on my face. I had not been back into the comedy rooms for a while. I'd been out of the rooms for a few years and all of a sudden we're back in. I'm watching all these great young comics at UCB or the improv or the comedy store and the laugh factory in LA. I'm watching them. And he started noticing that I was getting that look on my face. And one day he was just like, you want to get up and try it again? And you know, he swung a camera in the direction of a narcissist. What do you think was going to happen? I jumped on stage again. Now, uh, did you continue after? Are you still? Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fits the starts. It took me a little while to really get back to it, but I did. By by uh, by 2012, I was really back uh, um, headlining and doing gigs, and and uh, so I've been doing stand up regularly since. And then I started doing a show in the history of stand up comedy, which I really love doing because mm-hmm. it's the performance as much as anything else. So I get a chance to do the history of it, but I get a lot of laughs doing material, you know, from other comics and stories yeah. about it. Are funny, so yeah, I, I like that more than I like doing my stand up back now. <laughs> but let, let's talk about your, your stand up back now because, again, I, I started when I was very young. I started at 19, I know you started uh, young as well. And, and you know, you, you invest all that time and you have the blinders on. Now, at this point in my, in my life and at this point in my career, 
I feel like I have a better grasp of what I want to say. I have a better grasp of who I am as a performer. Do you feel that you're bringing more tools into the game now? As yes. A yes, absolutely. If you put me in front of, look, it's all about being in front of the right crowd. If you're not a draw, it's matching you with the right crowd. So you put me in front of a bunch of people my age, you know, you put me in front of certain audiences. I, I'm talking about what I'm going through, the way I see the world. They have the same experiences and feelings. So I love doing that. And, but I also love going into a room of, of a bunch of young people and talking my truth and seeing if they'll relate to what I'm to talk about. You make adjustments. I'm not going to bore them with, you know, uh, uh, and you, you can't talk about things they can't relate to the way you could somebody your own age reference points. But it's always interesting to see if what you want to talk about matters to younger people or somebody else outside of your demographic. Now, how uh, we're recording this, I'm not sure when this podcast will air, but we're recording right now in the middle of the pandemic. Have you uh, jumped on any of the Zoom shows? Have you, have you tried to translate it to that? I only got into this to hear the laughter. I don't want to... And there's, and there's, if there's no laughter, there's no comedy show. Now, God bless anybody who's making money doing it. It's fantastic. And if people want to go watch some comic, but I watch most comics. I've watched a couple Zoom shows, man. And even people who are doing jokes, you know, they've done a hundred times in front of the audience gotten laughs. If they don't hear that laughter, three jokes into their set, and you can see the wheels coming off, man. You see them start, their eyes start moving around a little bit. They're not hearing that laughter. That really funny. I know I've said that before. Their mind starts having that conversation. You know, you never want to have on stage. You never want to have that conversation. With, uh, should I do this next joke? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen it's not. It's not a good picture for me personally. Watch. You know, yeah. there are comedy albums. Uh, uh, they recorded comedy records back in the early part of the 1900s, but the equipment was such they couldn't bring an audience into the booth to record the comedian and the audience. So the comics back then performed with no audience. You can hear, and they were short records then too. They only lasted five minutes until 78. But when the material, uh, when the technology changed and they would take the recording equipment into the clubs or theaters where the comics were performing, those albums of the 50s and 60s, they're so great because you can hear the audience. You, you, and your comics performance is geared to the audience. We get our energy and our timing from the laughter in the audience. <laughs> so Let's the see, two yeah. worst albums that I've ever heard a comic perform are by two of the greatest comics of their era. Alan King did one in the studio with no audience, and so did Buddy Hackett. And they're terrible albums because those comics need the feed off the audience. And they were they were just trying to do these acts in, in a, into a microphone. Nothing I want to be a part of. Nothing <laughs> that you you know. I, that's why I never could be a DJ. I mean, I mean, Howard Stern figured out how to do it. Obviously, he, he put an audience of his crew in, in the room with him. And there, there's laughter there. And that helps. But I never, never had any desire to speak into the void. Yeah. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about comedy albums, because I know you're also a historian. Uh, for me, the, the first album that I can point to that had kind of a modern feel you know, more akin to what you were doing and what I, I'm doing um, was Mort Saul's albums. Even when you look at the Lenny Bruce albums, the early Lenny Bruce albums, they, they tended to be more akin to, you know, the Red Skelton era of stand-up. And, and really? Yeah. Really? A lot of set, a lot of really rhythmic jokes, a lot of really 
you know, Cagney impressions. And it wasn't until Letty Bruce made a, a systematic change. And I. Which, which yeah, album that, are you talking about? Because Letty's first albums, I. I I, I don't know where that, what that any album you, you're talking about because I, I haven't took. I'm, I'm talking well, not specifically albums. I'm talking clips that I'm seeing uh, with, with his first five or six television appearances. So you Let, are correct. His first album was when Lenny Bruce was Lenny Bruce, but the first yeah, his first appearance was just on the Arthur Godfrey Talent Contest when he did the when he did the sort of the German comic doing an accent of impressions, yep. but um. His, he only did two television appearances that, that I can really think of. Steve Allen's show, which is uh, the one where he did the uh, Jimmy Cagney impression. Do you remember that one? By the way, you're the only other human being in the world that I could have this conversation with. <laughs> you do realize well, that that you would be and that's it. Not to get too much into weeds with that, but I I, I think that the, the was probably the Arthur Godfrey. That's when he was really was started before he became what we know as Lenny. When he right. first started, young comic, he was just out of the, you know, basically just out of the army. He was in World War II, I mean, Navy. And he he did the Arthur Godfrey talent show, I think his mother's urging. And then, of course, he went out and tried that kind of club, club comic, and it didn't work. And he got off into that and, and, and became, you know, the Lenny Bruce that we know. Right. But uh, I don't know what... I, I think the more correct way would be to I do, I, do love, I do love more early albums. I mean, I, I absolutely... Love his work, and he was a big, a sea changer. He was a guy that changed a lot of things in stand-up comedy. Him and Lenny, that whole generation. I agree with you. Um, Red Fox obviously was big, big selling. I think they credit. I think the um, Library of Congress credits Mort Sol would be in the first comedy album is uh, Sunset when he opened up for Dave Brubeck Quartet mm-hmm. at the Sunset Auditorium in California. They call the album Sunset. They didn't release it though until it was, I think, recorded in '55, but they didn't fully release it until '58. I think it was just like a press in, there was no real. And, and the really, I think, as, as, as far as I can tell or know, that, that Red Fox was pretty much sold a bunch of albums. And that's when white uh, record companies started saying, look, we could sell some albums here. These guys are selling crazy. You know, his Do Two Records were selling crazy party albums. And so then, then they started. You know, looking around, and they got Shelley Berman, the first gold album, and Newhart, the first gold, you know, I mean, first number one hit record album. Yeah. It was number one music and spoken word album. So then they exploded in the early 60s with the comedy album. Now, why do you think they died out? Why do you think it come the end of the, the 70s? That be same, well, technology changed because nobody's going to get the records then because you could see so much of it on television. It mattered when you couldn't really see comics do long form or that many young comics. They were great marketing tools for the comics of the late 50s and 60s. Those guys weren't getting on the regular television shows. They weren't getting on Ed Sullivan. Mort Saul didn't get on Ed Sullivan until like 65 or 66 later. They weren't getting on those shows. So they reached their audience like marketing tools, the same way that that Dane Cook used Napster and early social media, MySpace, to reach his audience and not without going on television. The same way YouTube, same way the podcast, Mark Marin reached his audience with podcasts. Now everybody's doing podcasts like this. Yep. So that they're great marketing tools. And that's what happened back then in, the, in those. And, and so comics were, you know, they were party albums. So people would listen to the album in their dormitory or their house and, and, and adults would drink. My dad used to put on albums 
and his buddies and their wives and all, and they would sit around laughing at, at albums while they were drinking. So they were party albums, and they were um, they were ways for, for uh, people to hear comics long form because in the shows they were only they weren't like comedy specials. So the comedy specials and video comes along in the eighties, and you have video tapes coming out, and you have HBO and Showtime putting comics on doing half hour hour special. Albums became sort of outdated because why would you want to just listen to the album when you could see the whole comic on television or on a video cassette tape, and then later DVDs. So the technology changed. That's what really did the albums. So then, oddly, and I think, you know, love having this conversation with you, by the way. Um, oddly, then, how come comedy movies, with the exception of Richard Pryor's movies, never made a dent? With, at least with the American audience. I know Billy... Uh, Billy Conley had a comedy movie that was big in the UK, uh, yeah. and, and there were a couple of other ones uh, in Europe. But in the American market, only Richard Pryor was. Oh, Richard Pryor's movie came out late seventies. I'm going to hold me to this, but I think it was seventy-eight. I believe so. Yeah, it came out in seventy-eight. So video cassettes went out. So that was the first time I saw a comic. Like I, I saw comics in concert. Right. I saw before then I saw Robert Klein in concert. I saw Carlin in concert. I saw Steve Martin in concert. But when I saw Pryor's movie, I never sat there and watched. I mean, I watched that show every day for a week at Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. I was in there every day watching that movie. And so I never could see that much a comic doing a full show like that. You know, you, yeah. you couldn't watch television. I don't, I don't think HBO was dominant then. They were HBO was on. But I didn't have HBO, and I didn't know anybody who had HBO. And so there was no other way to watch the long-form comedy. You, know, you could see somebody on The Tonight Show. You could see him on daytime talk show, Merv Griffin, back in the late 70s. You couldn't see anybody doing that kind of hour, hour and a half. So then by the time the 80s come along, now you've got all that. So no, there's no need to go to a movie theater and, and pay movie theater prices to see your favorite comic when HBO was getting them going, you know, Robin Williams was on HBO. Every big comic was on HBO doing their, their specials there. So let's, uh, let's talk about your, your talk. Is it a talk? Is it, is it a lecture? It's a show, you know, the history of standup. I know that yeah. in, in the show that you're, uh, you're, you're quoting bitch, you're going through the history. How long did it take you to research it? How long did it take you to, to script it and to come up with the form? Well, the, 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 the scripting came from performing it, obviously. That took like two years. I was researching it to write a book on the history of stand-up comedy for about 10 years. And um, and I just couldn't find a way to make it like really funny and great that I wanted to be like, I didn't want it to be dry. And I couldn't, I wanted to be as close to a stand-up show as possible in the book form. And then I started doing it on stage, and I went, this is the way to do it. I can, I can do an hour and a half show of the history of stand-up comedy, take a viewpoint, say something in it, and make it as funny as, as a stand-up show. Maybe not as funny, but make it really funny. Now, in doing the research, were there things that surprised you about the art form? Things you oh, found well, out? Of course. I mean, when I first started, uh, Phyllis Diller... Uh, encouraged me to write a book. We would always talk about, we didn't always talk about, we talked often, a few times over the years. I knew her since 1985, 86. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would talk about the history of stand-up comedy. So both of us just assumed it was Mark Twain as the first stand-up comic. 
person who went on stage, you want to define stand-up comedy, one person going on stage to the express purpose of making the audience laugh, that's it. And um, by reading Mark Twain, I discovered this guy, Artemis Ward, who actually, who Mark Twain learned to do stand-up was from this man, Artemis Ward. And the more I read about him, I said, this guy is the first stand-up comic. He virtually invented the art form. And it was fascinating. So that was a big surprise to me. And the more I read about this guy, the more I loved it. It was, it was every way a stand-up comic. So you're performing, you're doing, obviously, stand-up dates. You're doing dates of the history of comedy. You know, you're, you're kind enough to jump on podcasts like this on, on occasion. What What's the next thing that you're looking forward to doing? The next, because you come up with a big thing every five or six years, it seems. Well, I'm not done with this history of stand-up comedy show. I've just started with that. i got to come back and start doing it again when this pandemic is over. Yeah. So I'm trying to book dates and get it going again. I had lost, I had, I'd work all the way through to now. I could be still working. That all got canceled. So uh, I want to get that going again. That's what I hope to do is eventually film that. That would be it. That would be my next big thing was to do that. Um, and I don't know after that, but I, you know, I don't know. Maybe I almost thought about second book. There was another book, uh, other things I didn't say in kicking through the ashes. I think I have another book that uh, yeah. definitely have enough stories and enough other things I didn't say in the first one. So now um, this show's mostly geared towards younger performers, the the new guys, and there's a couple of, of things that I've found universal truths when I'm talking to guys like you and, and Tom Dreesen and Franklin Ajay and, you know, the guys I looked up to, um, you guys all seem to have a similar experience to what I did. And that is that the more veteran guys kind of reached back and, and, you know, gave you good advice at the time you needed to hear it. Who were some of the guys that were instrumental to helping you form what you became? Well, I, I talked about, I got a lot of good advice from Jerry Seinfeld, who was a little ahead of me on the path. Uh, I got a lot of good advice from Robert Klein. I watched those people, got great advice from them. Franklin Ajay was one of those people who was very kind to me when I first started. We went to see him open up for Donnie Hathaway at the cellar door. Andy Evans, who's another comic in Washington, D.C., and I uh, went there to see Franklin Ajay open up for Donnie Hathaway. Donnie Hathaway got so drunk the first show uh, that they flipped the order. And the next show, he opened and Franklin Ajay closed. Well, between shows, we said, you know, when we, when I was I was a regular opening act there. And so I said, can we send a note? We'd like to say hello to Franklin Ajay. Just say hello. And he brought us up and we hung out with him all night long. And he could have been kinder and given us advice. Gary Shanling was great when I first started in terms of giving advice and giving his time. There were so many comics. I mean, it'd be ridiculous. I mean, I don't, I, I can't remember. I can remember guys, but they weren't anybody. But the, the bigger they were, it seemed to me like the more willing they were to help you. Yeah, it is. It is true. We all, we all learned standing on the shoulders of the guys that came before us. That's, that's been universal in stand up since yeah. before I came yeah. in. And um, yep. what do you, what do you wish you knew when you started that you know now about stand-up? <laughs> yeah, that's well, a tricky one. No, I, I, 
wouldn't want to know it. If I, if I the only regret I had, I think I would have changed my name. My name is so difficult. I think I would have just gone with a different name. And I, and also because of my attitude about myself, my, my, you know, I never was good at self promotion. But I think if I changed my name, if I had a different name, one of the names I had when I first started was Elvis De Groot. And I think I would have worked for Elvis De Groot. I think I would have pushed for Elvis. I didn't really want to care much about working for Rich Scheidman. And I think if one of my another name was Bud Lunch. I had a name. I went on stage as Bud Lunch. I think I would have worked for Bud. I think I would have really tried to do something good for Bud. I wasn't interested in helping Scheidman. I'll be honest. I'd have bought tickets to Bud Lunch. <laughs> I'd have bought tickets to Bud Lunch. That'd be a concert I'd go to. <laughs> All right, so here's the absolute last thing you've been. The guy's offering you a beer and a meal. You can't get better than that. You're going to have a show, a beer, and a meal. What could go wrong? Uh, you've been absolutely. Just in case just, you were wondering, never smoking weed back then, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> well, you know, I think we all were smoking something back then. Uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I literally could fanboy out and talk to you for another 10 hours, but uh, I would much anytime rather. Anytime you want to talk, Jim, it's been my pleasure. Oh, this, is, this has been so much fun for me, you know, and the love you have for stand-up comes through whenever you talk about it. And that's just fun to, fun to hear. I love talking to comics who still love this art form. I, I tell you something. I love I love it. I love it's done so much for me. It's done so much. And I, I love I think it's better than ever. I think the comics have to now. I, I go around Asheville. Asheville has a comedy scene, like every town in America now. And they're great young comics here. I love watching them. And they all have different voices. There's so much people come loaded, loaded. And when they start stand up comedy now, I had a few people I saw some vague ideas of what it was. They come in, man. They come in so loaded and ready to go. I think the growth curve is so much faster Yeah, with comics today. It's just better. The art form is just getting better all the time. That's that's the beauty of this. When, when you learn, when you study from the people that have come before you, when you actually pay attention and utilize the lessons, you can get good in a hurry. And I, I don't think people realize that. But... Um, if you were going to put a list, because you've got three major works uh, that, that people, your two books and the documentary. If somebody wanted to study Rich Scheidner, what's the order that they should uh, be looking at these things in? Study me? Yeah. <laughs> you should well, get studied. Kicking Through the Ashes, that book is one. I think that really is, is right now. I covered the 80s and myself within it. And then... Um, I am comic. I think Jordan did such a great job with that documentary. Uh, virtually no budget, and uh, he he really really captured what it is for stand up comedy. So many different great people in that in that documentary. Yep. And then the third thing would be um, probably I killed because I am like every other comic, you know. In that book, I experienced so many other things. There were there were stories in there when I go. Well, that's kind of like a story I have. You know, we, we all experience a lot of the same things. So uh, that book is, I killed is, it's still, you know, people still, I, they'll, they'll come and see me someplace. They'll have a copy of that for me to autograph, whatever that. I'm still surprised at how many people have that book. Well, uh, I know it's on my shelf. Uh, both your books are on my shelf. They're, they're kind of must reading. Um, 
you know, I know that you had a bunch of dates that were canceled with your tour, but when your tour comes back, where can people find your tour dates? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to try to get up in the Northeast. I got to get up into the Philly, Jersey area. I'm talking to Richie, thinking about coming into the comic strip in New York City, of course. So I, I have to get into the Northeast. I'm going to do the Southeast here. I'm going out to California in September. I'm just going to try to get as many places as I can, you know, and do this thing uh, and see and see if, if people take to it, whether they like it. You know, that's it. I mean, I'll do it in front of small crowds for a while, but, you know, 10 years from now, I don't want to be doing eight people, you know. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't think there's got to be more than eight people that want to come see it. So I had the last show I did with it was in Florida. And again, this is, you know, down in the villages. So it was all, everybody there was over 55, but it were 300 people. It was packed and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. Now, of course, they're older people. And, you know, when you get older, you're more interested in history. Yeah. And like in the show, when I first started doing stand-up comedy, I didn't care about how people got laughter or who got laughter. <laughs> 10 years before I hit the stage. All I cared about how to get laughs that night. So I get it. We'll see if young people get a kick out of as much as the older people. I don't know. We'll see. I think they will. Uh, we definitely have to do this again and do a part two on this because I think we just touched, down, touched the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we are going to wrap things up. Rich, thank you so much for coming. Everyone needs to go to richshadner.com and, and see his tour dates and, and buy the books. He's got links on there. That you could go and get things. He uh, he does so much doesn't want to uh, promote, but I'll promote for Bud and Elvis and Rich uh, right now. So you got to go to the website and you got to you got to buy these books. And if you're a stand up and you haven't read I Killed, you're not a stand up. You need to read that book before you're welcome in the fraternity. Rich, thank you so much. We will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Jim. All right, bye bye. There is nothing more fun for me than having a conversation with somebody who truly loves the art form of stand-up comedy, and Rich truly does. He's been in the trenches since the late 70s. He's been one of those people that has seen everything that you want to see, has done all the things you want to do, and he's got so much to offer you guys in terms of his experience, his legacy, and just a wealth of information. You need to go to richheidner.com. You need to, to grab his books. You need to watch documentary. Um, you are going to learn so much just spending time with him. Uh, we're definitely going to have him back on again. Uh, but next week, we're going to have another great guest. So drop on by again. We will see you next time. On behalf of uh, myself and uh, Rich and everyone here at New Media Comedy, thank you so much for watching. Um, you can catch all the old episodes on YouTube. You can catch all the old episodes uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, please, when you're there, please leave a review, like, subscribe, and we will see you next time on the Comedy Legacy Series. Bye, everybody. This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.